Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mount Vigil podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Anthony. And this week, we are doing a little time travel, because I think the last show that we released was Israel, and that we recorded that one in... Six months ago. Yeah, at least. So we're back, and after examine, after Israel, here is where we're going. We are going to finish our series on the story of God so that we can talk about life in the church, the way of Jesus, spiritual formation, which is in fact what we actually wanted to record about right away, but we kind of realized a problem. Does the episode, does the series finish with this, with Jesus or does it go into the church and the return of Jesus and the eschaton? That's a good question. We're leaving that in so that you get to see <laughs> just how tightly orchestrated the Mount Vigil <laughs> mission is. And I guess I should say, I don't know. You know, several weeks ago, we sat down at a coffee shop. And we started to plan out, man, we're going to do this show in seasons, which we are eventually. And we're going to do a season on spiritual formation. Because living through a hard time can convince a person to go all in for the way of Jesus. And if you're me, it can make you actually look around to try and see what that is. Because a hard time exposes all the flaws in a worldview, all the flaws in a lifestyle, and finding mine made me go, oh, wow, well, how should I be living right now if I wanted to be growing in love? But we realized, if we talked about that first, we would be doing a self-help podcast, because the way of Jesus is shaped by Jesus himself, what he's done his particular vision of reality, his particular story. And it's about entry in to that absolute reality. We just couldn't talk about it until we had rounded out the story. So maybe we'll do a couple episodes on the mission of Jesus, how the story reaches its climax, uh, and then reference how that shapes the life of the church afterwards. But we don't know. Two weeks from now is kind of a mystery, everyone. Stay tuned, I guess. I'm excited about this upcoming, you know, season of talking about spiritual formation and like the you know, the Mount Vigil podcast began with this question of given the times um and given a world that's destabilizing and a world that will become more harsh for Christianity given the ills of modernity uh etc giving the news um like what is the church's role in the world right now and we, you know, all the all the initial questions came up. Do you buy cryptocurrency? Do you get off the grid? Do you leave cities? Uh, do you homeschool your kids? Whatever it is, and yeah, like those are all great questions, but they have to be uh, answered out of a position of one who knows the story of God, who knows Jesus, and the main answer to the question of like, what do we do is walk in the way of Jesus. So. I'm excited to spend however long, an hour here, just talking about this wonderful man-God, Jesus. <laughs> Me too, man. We have a bulletproof strategy, or maybe a tactic, regarding today's episode, which is we're going to talk about Jesus until we run out of time, right around the one-hour mark, and that will be episode one. And then we will come back and round out our conversation about Jesus. And if we get all the way through, that will be the end. And if not, it will be episode two. So I think this is going to be really fun. You just finished writing a study guide on the Gospel of Matthew. I've been writing about Jesus last year as well. And so there, there are almost too many thoughts to put in anything like a realistic order. But if I were to kick you the question, we're going to start talking about Jesus What's top of mind? What would you do first? I noticed you holding a book of prayers. So this is all a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Um, as a pause, just to give us a moment to encounter Jesus, uh, I just want to invite you, listener, to 
if you're driving, don't close your eyes, otherwise close your eyes. And just take a few deep breaths. And I'm just going to read a very short poem, basically. It's called an Akathist. It's from the Book of Akathists, which means standing prayers. And it's a treasure from the Orthodox Church. So yeah, just take a minute, pause, and focus your attention on Jesus. Seeking to understand the incomprehensible, Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father, and thou didst answer him. Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Likewise, O inconceivable one, with fear I cry to thee, Jesus, eternal God, Jesus, all-powerful King, Jesus, long-suffering Master, Jesus, all-merciful Savior, Jesus, my gracious guardian, Jesus, cleanse my sins. Jesus, take away mine iniquities. Jesus, pardon mine unrighteousness. Jesus, my hope, forsake me not. Jesus, my helper, reject me not. Jesus, my creator, forget me not. Jesus, my shepherd, find me. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. To answer your question, what's top of mind out of my study of Matthew, and this isn't necessarily like uh, some curriculum starting place, but it's just the thing that's top of mind, is that Jesus is the great wise man. And we typically, uh, it's common in the church to talk about Jesus as the great high priest, as the great prophet, as the king. But it's a newer concept to me that he also fulfills this Old Testament type established in Solomon, um, going back to you know wisdom in the Proverbs and so on, that like Jesus is the great wise man. And in Matthew, there's this verse where he says, one greater than Solomon is here, referring to himself. And uh, that was a, when I really paused to think about that statement, rather than just um, skipping ahead, just you continuing to read it, 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 um, kind of blew my mind that Jesus is the one who comes in after uh, in the type established by Solomon. And he is the great philosopher King who knows what is right and knows what we need to do and knows how humanity needs to live. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the, the need in Christianity to break down the barriers between theology and philosophy and to have one kind of seamless way of understanding reality, understanding all the great important questions. And so reading the Sermon on the Mount, where I spent most of my time last year, Matthew 5 through 8, 1, um, like that picture, starting with the Beatitudes, the, the blessings or the blisses, going all the way through their outworking in the Sermon on the Mount, and these four concluding warning passages that say, I've given you the teaching. Now you must live it. Like uh, Count everything worth the cost of following in this way. This is how you should live. And all, like, everything you want, all happiness, all joy, all beauty, all goodness, all fullness comes out of following me. So yeah, the thing that I want people to know is that Jesus has the answers. Uh, like He is the great wise man. I was preaching about this in... Uh, the story or this, the picture, I'm not sure if, you, if this is a thing in your mind, but like in the 90s and uh, in, in maybe late 80s, I, I just remember like over and over again seeing this, this meme, um, this idea of a guru sitting up on a mountain, some kind of yogi sitting in the lotus position and like an adventurer climbing a mountain, uh, braving the elements to, to get to him, to ask him the question, what's the meaning of life? And uh, there's lots of different versions of this, like the sage that can answer our questions. Those are just lesser, <laughs> I'm not, I mean, on one, on one level, we can't compare Jesus to a, a yogi. <laughs> on another level, we can, in that he really is the great wise man who holds the keys, who holds the answers. Woof. You know, there is a direct relationship between your two starting points. I actually love that in response to the question, where do you want to begin, you say, an encounter with Jesus. Mm. We talked offline another time 
uh, about and I one way of thinking through layers of reality, like not all things have the same degree. And I use the framework of the factual, the narrative, and the actual, or the factual, the narrative, and the real. And factual, you know, Anthony is six foot one. Mm-hmm. Uh, narrative, one time Anthony leapt out of his car in a snowstorm to help a druggie out of a ditch. <laughs> uh, real, here is Anthony. And there, there is a progression in our knowledge of a thing, which the philosopher Esther Meek calls covenant epistemology. But it's the point here with Jesus, the philosopher king, where there are facts about Jesus, then there are the testimonies about Jesus, then there is the direct informative encounter, which is the arrow of our search for Jesus. So those things are related. Uh, What's top of mind for me is, as I've been trying to contemplate the story as a whole last year, just spending my time, you've been in the Beatitudes, I've been in the through lines, like zoom way out to the big picture. And there's always more to know, but the degree to which Jesus brings a story that makes sense to its satisfying climax while doing basically like a 360 tomahawk jam of a crescendo. (laughs) What he does is so impressive in view of the story so far that when we start talking about Jesus, I start to feel excited. I go, oh man, well, if you can have in the back of your mind a triune God and his original design to order and fill the universe with covenant partners. And what we talked about all those months ago with the descent into madness and the domination of sin and rebel angels and sin disaster spheres and sacred spaces and carom warfare, all of that actually comes together in the great king who happens to be God himself coming in and through into his people for the entire world. So I'll actually give you, I'm going to give you a long quote because in this case, our boy Tom Wright says it really well, uh, which is just when I think where to start with Jesus, I think big picture, this one. He writes, the gospel writers saw the events concerning Jesus, particularly his kingdom inaugurating life, death, and resurrection not just as isolated events to which remote prophets might have distantly pointed. They saw those events as bringing the long story of Israel to its proper goal, even though that long story had apparently become lost, stuck, and all but forgotten. But, you may say, what's the point of telling the story of Jesus as the climax of the story of Israel? What relevance has that got to the rest of the human race? Here we touch on another point of foundational importance for the whole of early Christian thought and life. Understand this, and you will understand almost everything. In Israel's scriptures, the reason Israel's story matters is that the creator of the world has chosen and called Israel to be the people through whom he will redeem the world. The call of Abraham is the answer to the sin of Adam. Israel's story is thus the microcosm and beating heart of the world's story, but also its ultimate saving energy. What God does for Israel is what God is doing in relation to the whole world. That is, what is meant to be Israel, to be the people who, for better and worse, carried the destiny of the world on their shoulders. What I love about that, because we just talked about Israel and we went... Israelites are the nation of God, the people of the promise. They, we talked about different conceptions of nations, but we go, it is like God to deal with particular covenantal partners, an actual allegiant nation that fails utterly, but nonetheless gets to be the vessel through which the climax of the story comes. So when Jesus enters We need some kind of drum roll, cymbal clash, pipe organ, because what we're going to talk about is just so epic. 
I don't know what to say in response to that. <laughs> That's a beautiful quote. Um, this is one of the less important things to say, but that's Tom Wright at his more at one of his more eloquent moments. <laughs> He's not my favorite writer, but that was beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that was that was Tom Wright's acathists, man. He just kind of got a little bit swept away into the drama. Well, from here, we have a few places we could go. Our rough framework is to talk about the three disasters and maybe even the unholy three things that we talked about in the falls episode. And that would be how Jesus deals with sin, how Jesus deals with death, how he deals with spiritual oppression. What is the remedy in the story of God to the world, the flesh, and the devil? But That's not the only place we could go because there's also themes of temple, themes of Torah, you know, the eschatological Torah that is the Sermon on the Mount. So what do you think? Should we start with sin and how that theme is brought to its climax in the work of Christ? Yeah, let's start with sin and I'll start with a couple of scripture passages. So. Again, having spent my time in Matthew, that's the gospel I'm drawing from for this conversation. And uh, a chapter that we actually just went through is uh, in our community is Matthew 26, 26 through 28. This is Jesus and the disciples at the last uh, Passover, the last supper, and Jesus institutes the feast of Eucharist, communion, the Lord's Supper. And he says, it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. A related passage, Ephesians 2, 1, and I think through verse 9. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I love actually that this passage answers all three of the problems. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, in answer to the question, how, how does Jesus deal with the problem of sin? He pours out his blood and gives, us, uh, gives it to us, gives us his life, and uh, his blood of the covenant is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Oh my gosh. We could spend (laughs) the rest of our time at the Passover and at the Lord's Supper. Maybe we will. But as you were talking, I felt prompted to remind our friends listening since it's been a while. Really quick, the problem of sin is, one, an ontological taint. Something in the substance of human nature has become corrupt. But in the biblical story, it's still viewed as an external force that dominates humanity. And that goes back to Genesis 4 and God's warning to Cain, which has the form of his warning to Adam. But Adam's warning is about death. Cain's warning is about sin. So Adam gets the day you eat of it, you will die. Cain gets sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule it. Cain does not and becomes dominated by this animalistic impulse, this which unfortunately spreads 
or becomes a part of the entire human condition in a number of ways. And the management of sin in the Old Testament was the Torah and the sacrificial system. Broadly speaking, the blood of animals was an ontological, in the, in, on the level of the substance, a temporary purification of the ground and of people so that human beings could live in the presence of a God who is good. And then to retrain human nature and remind people who had become darkened in their understanding what was good and what was bad, since that had gotten confused, God gave the law. And the law laid out, don't do this. Don't murder, okay? The Decalogue on its own is amazing that that's in the Bible as like an actual piece of instruction that wasn't assumed in the prologue. Only worship God. Don't kill each other. Don't, with furious rage, envy, and covet, and try to get your neighbor's stuff, okay? That's just not a roadmap to human flourishing. But the ontological covering of blood in the sacrificial system was temporary, and the law could not fix the root of the problem, which was bone-deep human corruption, which is why the prophets looked forward to a day when the law would be written on the human heart, when there would be a cure for our humanity. So Ezekiel 11, 19 says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 31, 33, very famous passage says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be mine. Amazing promise that, so you get from there, sacrificial system, institutes of the law, animal, animalistic impulse to dominate, to suddenly there's this second exodus taking place, this blood poured out that is a once and forever covering of sin. Is there more that's top of mind for you to say about that? <laughs> I was actually going to read the same passage about the law being written on the heart. That's why I just pulled up. And that's that goes so deep to the heart of the problem, right? That um, Jesus gave Israel the Torah, and let's call it not just the law, but the instruction, the it is the law. It's also like just the fatherly teaching for the whole of how to live, how to be together, what what God's like design for human society should look like, for justice, for retraining our desires to be aimed at those that are righteous, for reshaping us and uh, like showing us how to be the kind of people that can relate to to God. But that wasn't enough as paul says it was a it was a grace it was a gift but uh no one could fulfill it no one could keep the law israel continued to fail as a people all all individuals do and the law had there was this future promise that that the torah the instruction would instead of be the, being this external code that we had to try and live up to um it would be you know, written on our hearts. It would be part of our identity. And there'd be, instead of this recurring sacrifice in which uh, a spotless lamb, the, the life of the lamb would be used to cover up the death of our, that, that results from our sin, but that had to be repeated over and over. And so we needed a once and for all sacrifice that would make a way for people to enter into relationship, to right relationship with God and with each other and with all of creation. And Jesus' blood accomplished that. Go take communion. <laughs> there is so much to say. I'm reminded of the fact that the Old Testament, no matter what order you read it in, ends on such a sad note. And that's actually true of the entirety of the story of God up until the incarnation, up until the decisive action begins. So there, there is hope 
at the end of Genesis 3, but it's so sad. It, it's the hope of a coming redeemer, a snake crusher, but humanity is trudging out of the presence of God. And they still have the task to make the world look like God's vision of paradise, but they no longer have the nature to accomplish it. And Genesis 11 ends on such a downer note where the people are scattered, the imperial building project is is abandoned, God withdraws, there's an administration of spirits, on and on through each of the major beats where the book ends with the return from the Babylonian exile. But everyone in Judah knew that the great return had not happened because the 10 tribes destroyed by Assyria had not come back. And, and most importantly, when they reconsecrated the temple, God did not come. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild it. And then they put a wall around the city that was prophetically destined to have no walls, to be a city of all the world. So they're back and they're rebuilding. And then all of a sudden, what? You're putting up gates and fortresses and the men are lying down on their duty and no one's following the law and God did not come back to the temple. And the story in the intertestamental period gets worse where, you know, you're familiar with the Maccabean revolution and the rededication of the temple and Judas the Hammer, and it would all be a great novel. I'm not going to write it because it would also be very sad, but it's a great story. And the presence of God does not come. One of the reasons that Judaism was so fractured by the time of the incarnation of Jesus is because temple worship had fallen apart. The Zealots, for example, the whole Zealot movement did not regard the temple and its priests as being authoritative because they knew their Bible and they knew that the fire of God had not come and filled it. So there was no dwelling place of God with man. None of it had happened. And then Jesus comes. Another Tom Wright observation, which is from Matthew's gospel, that relates to that situation in terms of sin is that Israel had baked into the middle of its culture this concept of jubilee, which was a national expression of Sabbath. Every seven days, you get a Sabbath. Every seven years, you get a jubilee year. And then the seven of sevens is special as well. Well, the genealogy gives you at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, six lists of seven and makes Jesus the seventh seven, that the jubilee of jubilees is here to save people from their sins. And it's Tom Wright's observation that sin and exile go hand in hand. This isn't like an I don't know. This isn't a disembodied need for forgiveness, though forgiveness is certainly important. To be saved from the presence and oppression of sin is to be brought back into the presence of God, returned into a kingdom to get to live in a family, all of which we've lost because of the domination of sin. But something new becomes possible when da 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 da, the new Moses leading his new exodus, arrives, leading the ultimate Passover meal, mm. which you have nothing more to say about. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably the best opportunity for a quote I've prepared. Um, in our Israel episode, I read at length from The Mediation of Christ by Thomas Torrance. And it, uh, those quotes were about the role of Israel as the chosen people. You know, all the nations had been uh, exiled from relationship, immediate relationship with God because of sin. So God had to call Israel to create a new people, a new nation, uh, in a sense, ex nihilo, so that he could uh, relate to them, give them the Torah, give them uh, the sacrificial system. But what happens when that nation can't fulfill its role to mediate the revelation and reconciliation of God to all of mankind? 
because they also are sinful and the sacrificial system doesn't doesn't ultimately solve the problem. So the uh, the connection point there, I'll just read this quote. The transcendent holiness and unapproachable majesty of God had been indelibly imprinted upon the memory and soul of Israel, not only through the awesome law giving at Mount Sinai, but through the sacred liturgy prescribed by the word of God for the annual celebration of the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle or the temple. When God's covenant with Israel was renewed, it was at the risk of his life and only under cover of the blood of atoning sacrifice that the high priest, representing all Israel, could enter through the veil into the immediate presence of God in the Holy of Holies and bring back to the people of Israel the peace of God in renewal of his covenant mercies. The sacrifices and oblations offered by the high priest were not regarded as having any efficacy in themselves, but as having efficacy only insofar as they were acts of liturgical obedience, bearing witness to the fact that it is only God himself who can make atonement for sin and effect reconciliation. As such, Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, in the liturgical year carried within it the promise of a final day of atonement. When God himself would provide the lamb for sacrifice and cleanse his people from their sin, making them holy as he himself is holy. That is, we believe, precisely what was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross, and fulfilled once for all, not in liturgical repetition, but in the flesh of Christ Jesus, who, as both the atoning sacrifice and our high priest, entered through the veil into the immediate presence of the Most High. Three evangelists tell us significantly that at crucifixion of that at the crucifixion of Jesus, the veil of the temple in Jerusalem was actually rent down the middle. By his blood, Christ has reconciled us to God and thereby opened the way for all who believe in his name to enter with him into the holy presence of God and share in the gift of the Holy Spirit, which he received from the Father. Thus, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the communion of the Holy Spirit, we sinful human beings may have access to the love of the Father and know him not from afar, but intimately as he is in himself. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified and have peace with God. Otherwise, we, re we remain in our sins, unforgiven and alienated from his grace, with only the fearful prospect of divine judgment before us. So Jesus himself fulfills the role of Israel. He becomes the great high priest. He becomes Israel, the people, and himself. And uh, it's his blood that is the, the, the fulfillment of that promised uh, like fulfillment of the sacrificial system, he is it. Uh, and he makes a way for us to commune with the Father. Like the result of sin is that we are estranged, we are exiled, we are actually at enmity in our flesh with the Father, and Jesus has made a way in his body. I'm glad you put that in slightly more layman's terms, because as soon as the word indelible gets used more than <laughs> once in a quote, Torrance is a beast, man. That was put so well. I find myself stuck on the volume of information here. We do have an outline. We have a plan. <laughs> the problem is that it's almost ridiculous to say, but Jesus is so big. And... The upgrades involved are so significant that it's really hard to, in a casual way, rehearse the, <laughs> the key themes of the gospel, name the, the main parts of the good news. But again, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this thing on humanity has this problem, sin, a nature that cannot abide goodness an animalistic impulse to dominate. It, just like a magnetic aversion to goodness and truth and beauty. The original design is not fully lost, but it is intermingled, hopelessly intermingled with destructive activity and a destructive nature. You know, the, the logical extreme of sin, right, is that if humans had become immortal and sinful, they would have been demons because sin is like 
in kind to demonic activity, but not in degree. It's not eternal. And so, the I mean, just the news here of, hey, listen, uh, that the aversion to goodness, that that bend to just destroy your own life, you can actually be cured of that by coming back into living relationship with God. Well, how can I actually draw near to God, who is holiness himself, who is beauty himself? You can actually pray to receive and live to receive the blood of Jesus as the covering of your nature, which happens one time and then over and over as we retrain our flesh according to the eschatological Torah of Jesus. It's really amazing news. You mentioned just briefly that the Last Supper is Passover. And I think if there were one thing for a person to know about the gospel, it would be that the Last Supper is a Passover meal. Because if you get that, the other pieces really begin falling into place. And so, what happened at Passover? Well, people were given an option. Anyone who wanted to be a part of the nation of God could celebrate this liturgical meal and follow him out into his story. And the people who did that became the nation of Israel. What Jesus is doing at his Passover meal is initiating the ultimate exodus, which is you can leave the domination of sin. You can leave the way of this world. It may feel like you're being led into the desert as you are led into a radically different way of life following Jesus, your King, but you can get out. At the Mount of Transfiguration, this becomes really clear. This was from Pierre Briant in his book, Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. Yeah. And where he just points out that when Moses and Elijah appear at the Mount of Transfiguration, they're talking to Jesus about his departure, but the Greek word is exodon, and there's a great argument to be made that a more faithful rendering would be God's divine counsel appears on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're discussing and troubleshooting and planning their way through the exodus of Jesus, where he's leading people out of the domination of sin and death and spiritual oppression into a new kingdom. Mm. And you also said recently on a liturgy you wrote, which is just huge, that it's the Last Supper that makes the crucifixion a sacrifice. Would you like to say anything else about that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, the thing I'll respond to you there is Matthew especially makes it so clear that everything Jesus is doing is recapitulating the entire Old Testament, the entire narrative uh, of God and his relationship to Israel in himself. And then uh, his blood of the new covenant, as we read in uh, the, the first Lord's Supper, establishes a new people and makes a way for us to come out of an estrangement from God into relationship with God. And you're talking about the Exodus this this beautiful picture when Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water and the Father uh, confirms him, when it says the heavens were rent, this is a picture, it's it's similar language, especially at, not in Matthew, but one of the other gospels, but it's there anywhere it talks about the heavens being rent, that just like the waters were divided in the Reed Sea for Israel to pass out of Egypt back into, well, into the desert, a time of testing before entering into the promised land, Jesus, when he comes out of the water, the heavens are rent instead of the waters. So now the way is made into the heavens. And so much of what's happening in the ministry of Jesus is bringing heaven to earth. That, that you know, the mountain that he's on top of, that transfiguration, we get a glimpse of this, you know, imagine a triangle of the mountain, he's at the very point of it, and in his body, he becomes the union of heaven and earth, the place where um, God's government and presence is perfectly at one with physical creation, the, the, the mystery of incarnation. 
And this is what Jesus invites us into. It's so, sorry, you want to keep going. I want to talk about the waters <laughs> yeah, splitting open and Jesus recapitulating the entire story. Well, I was just going to say that if you expected Jesus to recapitulate the entire story, you know, there's a little bit of a, a clear progression after he was baptized, where would you expect him to start? And you would go, oh, well, you would expect him to start both in the garden somehow and also in the beginning of the formation of the nation of Israel during the time of Exodus and testing in the desert. Well, the gospel writers, the evangelists make sure that you see both happened. He goes straight into the, into the desert for 40 days. He goes straight into the <laughs> desert for 40 days. And Mark makes sure you don't miss and he was with the wild beasts. Mm. And there's no, he did not strive with the wild beasts. He was at peace with creation again. And so he's Adam again, but his, because he is himself the garden, he is where God dwells. You expect the tempter to come. And the stories, they overlap so much. The story of Exodus and Genesis 1 to 3, let's just say are related. And so... Jesus goes out, he completes the wandering of Israel, only he does not fail and rebel. He also faces the tempter again. And the temptation of Jesus is one of those things that will actually really help you read Genesis 3, because it finally hit me last year that the, the slanderer, the enemy knows exactly what Jesus's mission is. And so they start in the garden. He starts his Israel, and it's about testing. Is God really here? Is his heart for you good? And then he takes him to the top of the temple where they're looking down on the altar and says, throw yourself down, Allah, as the sacrifice, because God, you know, God would never let that happen to you. And then he takes him to the mountain of Bashan, the demonic mountain, and shows him the nations of the world and says, these were all given to me, which is not true, by the way. You know, the Lord never gave the devil anything but a kingdom of dust. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the progression is, do your job, do what you're here for, but on your own terms and in your own way for your own ends. So, some people object to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being there, right there next to the tree of life, maybe even intertwining. You know, the trees are related. But, say, but the response is, of course, they're supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and the bad. Because Adam has already demonstrated that he can perceive the hidden design of God's intention inside animals and call out their names and set himself in relation. It is the destiny, but the way to do it. Are you going to do it on your own time and your own way to your own ends or in living relationships submitted to the Father? Adam fails. Jesus does not. He does not take the bait and go, man, okay. Are you kidding me? I can get the cosmic mountain? I actually am here to lay siege to the demonic mountain. But I'm going to do it by giving my life away. And as soon as that happens, he comes back over the river, like Israel, about to take possession of the promised land, but also like Adam, had Adam departed the garden unfallen to make the entire world Eden. And so, if you want to know what humanity is for, there's Adam doing the work of God, ordering the world and filling it with life, but what it looks like immediately is driving out demons. <laughs> Earlier, you asked me about Passover. I think it's really helpful to, real, to look at Jesus' passion story and to realize that the beginning of the passion, uh, starting with the Passover meal he, he shares with his disciples, creates the context and the interpretive framework for the rest of Jesus' passion and for the crucifixion. Also, what's happening there is his fulfillment of Yom Kippur commonly known as the Day of Atonement, better known as the Day of Covering, because atonement is, in a sense, a fake word, and uh, at one minute isn't quite as 
isn't really a faithful translation of the word covering. So, nerdy side note. So, uh, Jesus is the, you know, it, uh, at Yom Kippur, there are two goats that, you know, every year one of them were sacrificed, one of them the priest would lay his hand on the goat, put the sins of the people on the goat, and send it back into the desert out to, is it Azazel? I can never say that name correctly. Out to Azazel, or Azazel. Or Azazel. Azazel. And, um, uh, like the symbolism of this of this act was one there were there was a a goat that was used it was sacrificed and its life its blood was used to cover the people from all of their sins and to uh, restore right relationship between them and the father the other goat again the sins of the people were laid on it and it was sent out to Azazel which is a picture of returning the sins returning the root of sin back uh, returning the sins back to the, you know, from whence it came to uh, the demons. Yeah. Here's your stuff back. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so this actually happens in, uh, at Jesus' passion, Jesus becomes the sacrificial goat uh, at his death on the cross. And a really interesting side note here is that I, uh, this is an, an idea from Peter Lightheart, who is an amazing theologian and writer. Peter Lightheart made this observation that Barabbas, who is the one, so uh, how much of the story do I need to retell, do you think? Of Barabbas? Yeah. Oh, you certainly need to tell some. Okay. So Barabbas is a revolutionary who is imprisoned and Pilate brings him out to the people of Israel to say, um, you know, hey, I, I'm, I can release a prisoner today. How about I release, do you want me to release this this uh murderer, this revolutionary Barabbas, or Jesus, who it appears didn't actually break any laws. And the people say, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. So Barabbas becomes the goat that normally would be sent back to Satan, but instead he comes back into the people of of Israel. This is in Jerusalem. This is a picture of Israel's uh, ultimate like failure to to be the fulfillment of, of Torah and so Barabbas gets sent back into the people instead of being sent out into the desert. And this is kind of a condemning moment for Israel, and it seals their fate, which will be realized at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. This isn't a permanent indictment upon Jewish people, upon uh, this gets misinterpreted throughout the ages with anti-Semitism and so on. It's not about that. It is about the replacement of the ethnic people of Israel as the fulfillment of God's plans and the fulfillment of God's plans in Jesus instead. So now Jesus is the Israel is Israel and everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike, are invited back into right relationship with God through that sacrifice. I'm gonna add a couple more layers. I hadn't heard that one about uh Barabbas potentially being the goat for Azazel. I think there's a lot to be gained from that reading, especially when Bar Abba, and his name is, he's son of the father. Well, his first name is Jesus. Yeah, he's, he's Jesus, son, of the, son of the father. Yeah, they're both, um, they're two sons of Israel right. who, who kind of fulfill this image of Yom Kippur. Some fascinating pieces in addition are that Jesus then goes outside the city, and it's outside the city that he's killed, which unites him with the goat for Azazel. Though he's not sinful, he is carrying the transgression away. And it's Josephus who lets the cat out of the bag by narrating the progression of the Day of Atonement of you know, the scarlet cord that would be draped around the goat and the way that people would spit on the goat and hurl curses at it as a way of renouncing their sins as the goat was led through the streets of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And so when those same things happen to Jesus, you know, it's, it's a dense, Tim Mackey calls it a densely woven tapestry and like getting any one of the threads out because when Jesus is, you know, when they're hurling mockery at Jesus as he's exiting the city, there are many scenes in the background. Many different parts are coming to their completion. But 
One of them is that even though he is the spotless offering and the Passover lamb, which is one thing, and then the goat for Yahweh, which is another thing, he's also the suffering servant at that moment from Isaiah, who's carrying the people's sins far away from them, removing them from the city of God, so that even though that particular city of God is about to get seriously ransacked uh, because of people like Barabbas. <laughs> yeah, ultimately, Jesus fulfills both types, both goats in, him, in, in himself. But I just think it's fascinating to observe the way that, like, yeah, and both things are happening where humanity is falling and humanity is being preserved at that one moment. And the story of Israel is reaching a glorious climax and also a really sad, sudden, like, and now, by the way, the temple is going to be destroyed and the city is going to be raised to the ground. But at the same time, the city of God is going to exist and the restored people of God who are going to appear shortly after his ascension into heaven. So there's quite a few layers here. There's <laughs> <laughs> so much, especially in Matthew. Uh, it, it, as I was trying to write notes and a study guide for the text, um, it, it was just impossible. The number of allusions, int- intertextual things happening. He's a master orchestrator, conductor, who's just folding in, weaving in every single thread that possible from the Old Testament into the narrative with all these, the illusions just come hard and fast. Um, it's interesting that Jesus, as the goat sent back to Azazel, uh, in, you know, during Holy Saturday, during his time in the grave, goes to the underworld and, uh, <laughs> and uh, takes the keys to death in Hades, uh, away from Satan. So he does go back to Azazel, and that's where he defeats death. It's so... What? Epic. Okay. I think that we can actually cover death fairly quickly, but the theme of spiritual oppression is going to take some time. Uh, also, I have just some wonderful quotes from uh, you know Pope Benedict on the 16th, on exorcism and the ministry of Jesus and also the way that the gospel is the liberation from spiritual powers. But then he talks about the way that Christ exercises rationality and frees the human mind from demonic oppression. And it's just amazing. So we're going to probably get to that next time. But we do have time, I think, to name some of the ways that Jesus addresses what really comes into the story is problem one. The warning to Adam is the day you eat of it, you will die. Mm. Adam does. And then, oh my gosh, at the end of God's speech to Adam in Genesis 3, he tells him, you will die. And it's so sad and dramatic. But death Death, sin, spiritual oppression, death we talked about, being present in the people, and, and there really is, there's a little more than a glimmer of hope. Because we talked about at the Exodus, they passed through the Aaru, the Sea of Reeds, which is the Sea of the Dead in Egyptian mythology, and it's there in the background as a riddle, a hopeful riddle, but still a riddle that passing through death you will actually enter into life. Nonetheless, they all die. Moses dies and it's absolutely devastating. You know, the death of King David is even sadder where he dies cursing his enemies. And all the way through, there's just this issue of what about a world that is in bondage to decay? What about the direction of entropy in the universe? What does Jesus do about that? I think the, the most concise and accurate way to answer the question, what does Jesus do about death, is he defeats death by death. And this gets very deep into the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the redemption of suffering for Christians, and uh, the point of the crucifixion. And something that is woefully neglected in 
evangelical Christianity and Protestant Christianity is the liturgical observance of the harrowing of hell. So we, if you're lucky, there's some acknowledgement of Passover on Wednesday or on Thursday, and then um, there's often a Good Friday service, and then Sat- you know Holy Saturday is a day off, basically, and then there's Resurrection Sunday, commonly known as Easter. And that day, Saturday, Jesus being in the grave within the Eastern Orthodox Church is uh, who probably best has preserved an understanding of what this is about and, and how, how central it is to the good news. Uh, something called the harrowing of hell happens. Tell us about that. The harrowing of hell is when Jesus, who descends into the grave, empties the devil of his kingdom. This is really wonderfully displayed in iconography. I love in Orthodox icons of the resurrection. Jesus is in this athletic stance, balanced on top of the grave, and he has in either hand the arm of a really old man, white hair, long beard, wrinkles, and a really old woman, white hair, wrinkles, just, and it's Adam and Eve, and he's pulling them up out of the grave, and Adam and Eve also being a type of humanity. So, you know, the enemy in Genesis 3 tries to get on the throne of God, which we learn from primarily the prophet Isaiah. You said in your heart, I will, send, I will ascend the mountain of God. I will sit in the midst of the assembly. He's going to rule the divine council. Well, the kingdom that he gets is an empty kingdom lower than the earth. You're just going to eat dust, meaning you're just going to be a devourer of the dead. Very graphic image. In the harrowing of hell, the enemy does not have his kingdom anymore. So it is that in Christian eschatology, everyone is awaiting the first resurrection. The power of death, the stranglehold of but we all die and go down and then just nothingness is broken in the promise of resurrection. So all of these have a dimension of that famous Christian already and not yet. Like we're saved from the ontological taint of sin, but much sin lingers in our habits and in the iniquity of the world that we inhabit. And it's a lifetime of training, actually, to be reformed in the image of Christ. And spiritual oppression will have a lot to say about. But death is that, you know, we have the hope of resurrection and the certainty that the enemy is the, has no kingdom. He's not the king of the dead. He's the king of nothing. A verse for this that I just think is amazing in its ability to capture what it feels like to be saved from the power of death is 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 16. Let me give you the whole thing. It goes like this. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, do not lose heart. 
(laughs) Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Mm. Isn't that just amazing? (laughs) Praise God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so what's he saying there? We carry around death in the body, but life is born from it. He's saying a lot. I read a thing just this morning that was, people who have pat answers to suffering are is always a dead giveaway that they haven't experienced enough of it because <laughs> it introduces a humility even into the life of a disciple. Mm. But there is, one, the hope of resurrection. It really all is about the age to come. It really all is. There is also the miraculous reality that even now, life is born out of death. The minor death of suffering with Christ can actually yield the life of love and hope and perseverance. Elsewhere, when Paul writes, you know, we know that suffering produces perseverance and so on, something has happened to his worldview because that's not necessarily true. Suffering can produce bitterness, rancor, despair, but in the kingdom of God, where the power of death is broken— even where we give things away, we find ourselves filled. It's like the principle of death has, had, has just been reversed for the people of God in this age. In the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus defines the good life. The word blessed there is blissful. Blissful are those who suffer. Blissful are the impoverished of spirit and so on. And like what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is redefine human flourishing as something that looks like on the outside suffering. It is suffering, but uh, like human flourishing becomes people suffering while awaiting the eschaton. <laughs> and it, it's, it can be a hard pill to swallow, but it's actually beautiful and it uh, redeems suffering for the Christian. And for, for, for the, the follower of Christ, suffering becomes... Uh, replacing the perishable with the imperishable. And I'll read another Corinthians passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 8. 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the scriptures. It's Paul uh, going on and on about resurrection. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I love that. I love the therefore in the passage you read and in this passage. Um, he concludes by saying, the work that we're doing now, the sufferings and the labors that we undertake, don't, don't, don't grow weary and don't leave the path. Be steadfast and immovable and maintain hope because all of that uh, is investing, is feeding into eternity. Uh, and in the eschaton, in the age to come, it will all be redeemed. This is a perfect place to leave our friends. I'm actually going to pray for them, for you guys a little bit out of that reality. We've just begun to survey the gospel of Jesus. What is it that he does? How does he address the three disasters? How does he bring the story to its climax? There's much more to be said, but man, here where we talk about the hope of resurrection and life being born out of death, I'm so moved in an hour like this one to pray, 
Jesus, we bless our friends listening in your name. We pray for a restoration of hope to each listener, that they would actually overflow uh, with life being born out of death, with not with yes, God, a vision of glory to come that would be real relief and the relief of your Holy Spirit in them, bringing life out of whatever season that they're in. I pray that their households would be characterized by resurrection, that they would actually overflow with the life of God uh, this month at the beginning of this year, and that the life that is moving in them, the spirit that is in them, which raised Christ from the dead, would give life to their mortal bodies, light to their mind and imagination, clarity to their perception, but they would feel your easy yoke, Jesus, because of your work. I'll conclude with another agathist. Do you want to end with that prayer? Oh, yeah. In thy resurrection, O Christ, thou didst show forth the new creation. For, just as in thy birth from the virgin, thou didst not destroy the seal upon the tomb. Therefore, we honor thy passion, we glorify thy burial. In faith, we worship thy glorious resurrection and offer hymns of thanksgiving unto thy tomb, saying, Rejoice, life-bearing tomb, for Christ is risen from thee and hath renewed all the world. Rejoice, for the stone that was rolled away from thee hath shattered the gates and doorposts of hell. Rejoice, for the Son of the whole world hath shone forth from thee. Rejoice, for when Christ lay within thee, the nether regions were shaken asunder. Rejoice, for hell hath unwillingly given back alive those dead whom of old it did seize. Rejoice, thou lightning flash, which did hide the divine pearl within thyself. Rejoice, life-bearing tomb, whence Christ is risen.